All right. Back to episode three. I think it's episode three. Web it's, three whispers. It's episode I mean, it's four, just, dude. Come on. All right. Episode four. Web three whispers. <laughs> Still getting whispers, it down with whispers. the intro. All right. Fuck me. That was, that was not as good as with, I was hoping. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're always just throwing out different stuff here for the intros. But uh, it's me, Matthias, co-founder of Shogun Wars. We have Steve. Hey, guys. Uh, writer Steve's here. Lore. Go for <laughs> um, it. And then actually we have Steve, you want to enjoy? I want to uh, intro the guests. Yeah, so we have uh, Gio Medici here. He is uh, he is the founder of Abacus. Correct me if I'm wrong, Gio, but you are enjoying yourself on a pretty beach in the Bahamas right now. <laughs> We're making yeah. up locations for him. <laughs> if only, if only the I got rugged on that trip. <laughs> <laughs> and Gio, do you want to introduce our special guest as well? Yeah, I mean, Zeus is just an overall good guy. Has some good ideas. <laughs> <Been parallel. laughs> Man with a lot of good ideas probably needs no introduction, really. Yeah. Zeus himself. <laughs> Zeus is here. Zeus. Enthusiast. Yeah, you want to say hi, Zeus? <laughs> What's up, <guys? laughs> Very quick. I like that. Mute, unmute, mute. Um, <laughs> anyways, yeah, so we were talking a little bit before the podcast with, uh, with Gio, and Gio was just telling us he came up with Abacus. He was sitting down with a couple of friends getting high. Uh, talking about ketchup and mustard and then eventually he just said you know what guys like fuck it i have the craziest idea and he came up with abacus and uh <laughs> no that's that is <laughs> not like the, that. that is not the genesis story Gio. do you want to you want to talk a little <laughs> bit about your uh your project and and what it does yeah i mean dude maybe i should adopt that as my genesis story <laughs> yeah <laughs> i could oh, just I'd make it sound like that was your genesis story not have me uh... <laughs> we'll play along it's yeah. cool if anybody we'll... asks we'll we'll go along with it so um yeah so abacus is basically a protocol that um prices nfts in a way that unlocks the ability to programmatically lend on them you know in a similar way that DeFi allows for programmatic borrowing and lending of different assets uh, Mm -hmm. abacus basically unlocks that through this thing called optimistic proof of stake which sounds a lot more complicated than it is. It just means that we could trust the people who are appraising it at certain prices because the money is there. Um, And so it's optimistic because we can assume that they're 100% correct since the money is there. And it's basically also, if, if the owner or someone decides to close the pool, they're essentially challenging the trader's um, value that they ascribe to the NFT. Um, and then if the traders are right, basically, and it sells for as much or more, they're at a net positive because of the yield that they earned or the premium and the yield. And if they're wrong, um, then the traders who are in tickets, which are basically ranges of values above the final uh, auction sale value, um, are basically slashed as if they were in fraudulent validators. Nice. Thank you mm. for that. Yeah. And the... And I think it's really cool for a lot of reasons, but um, the way that I that I got my uh, very simple, uh, we'll call it a quantum mind because you couldn't even see it with the microscope, um, wrapped, ar- <laughs> <laughs> wrapped around the mechanics is uh, by picturing the process like a capital raise. So, um, or the capital stack following a capital raise. So like in a capital stack, you have tiers of seniority. 
um, as in if the company was to liquidate certain sources of capital, like lenders, prefer preferred shareholders, common stockholders, et cetera, they get their capital back first before others. And so that's kind of the way that I thought about the pools. So like transitioning to Abacus, a trader can start a pool for an NFT. The pools are tiered in increments of one. Is that correct? Yeah. They're tiered in increments of one uh, with different maturity maturity dates. The lower pools have more seniority, seniority essentially like if the NFT goes to auction and the price is overvalued by the traders, then the traders at the bottom of the capital stack, i.e. like the higher levels will get slashed, like you were saying. Um, and thus there's less risk, less reward if you're at the top of the capital stack, i.e. like zero to one. Um, and then the higher pools have more risk, more reward. So like if the NFT goes to auction, it trades, it sells for a premium, then the premium gets split. Um, and the people at the bottom of the capital stack, the ones that took more risk and valuing it higher, get more reward. But if um, they overvalue, like I said, their, their holdings get slashed. So there's incentive to accurately value the NFT because if you're trying to overvalue it, you could essentially get slashed at the bottom of the capital stack. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. It likely won't be like if the value that someone could get if they were to take, you know, two weeks to go mm -hmm. find a buyer and source a deal. Mm -hmm. It's likely going to be priced near or at the distressed value of it because the idea is that it's essentially they're they're basically just right the auction is essentially just a distressed sale of that in it mm -hmm. right and so that's what they're going to price it for and can you interesting can you talk a little bit about how that like lends itself to lending on nfts like collateralizing nfts for for lending yeah so if you're a lender um right if you're a lender then what you can do now is you can look at these pools of any nft with a pool open Mm -hmm. and say okay i see in here that there's 100 ETH. because there's 100 ETH in there and i know the unlock schedule mm -hmm. i can give this person a loan and if they don't return the loan you know before um some amount of liquidity unlocks mm -hmm. then i can liquidate them if they do and, and i know exactly what i'll get upon the liquidation right so because of that, now you can lend at like a, you know, 80% LTV. And we look at like the, um, the lending protocols that are out now, either you have an extremely low LTV or you have an extremely high APR. Mm -hmm. And what someone who's a big back holder mentioned to me recently was that it's kind of nuts that you have to spend 70, you have to pay like a 70% rate to borrow on your NFT. Because unless you're earning that 70% somewhere else, then you're, you're just losing money to borrow. You're yeah. just losing money. And yeah. so it's useless. No, and that makes sense. And I think the the thing, like the reason why LTVs are so low and, and rates are so high is because there hasn't been a reliable protocol that is, you know, inexpensive and you don't have to trust a third party to value the NFTs that are being collateralized, like on these loans, right? Yeah. And so that's yeah. kind of where Abacus comes in is that there's there's a there's an actual number they can that a that a lender could rely on. There's an actual amount that they know they're gonna get in liquidation. Um and so there's inherently a lot more trust from the lender side that they're gonna get back what they lent. And um thus like less risk, less like smaller rates, higher LTVs, basically everything that someone who's actually looking to uh borrow on their NFT is looking for.
I feel like the the lender is not even lending to an NFT at this point. It's just kind of lending to ETH. Um, mm-hmm. so like maybe mm-hmm. maybe the the lenders in the situation are like the pool depositors. Because um, mm-hmm. when it comes to like actually giving someone like stablecoin or ETH, like it doesn't really matter what the NFT is, right? It's just like the existence of that pool and knowing how much money sits there for however long. Yeah, you kind of you kind of bypass by, bypass the NFT at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's actually i was getting oh sorry go ahead i was gonna say that's like the goal of it right like Mm -hmm. you basically take this question of what's the value of this nft and all of the risks and the possible rewards that come with it so an nft bull run a bear market some rug pull someone losing their nft whatever it is and you just give that decision of how to price all of those things to the free market instead of Mm-hmm. relying on some algorithm or whatever it is and not only are you giving it to the free market to decide but the free market is in, in exchange the free market is giving you back a 100 percent guarantee that this is what you'll get in exchange for that mm-hmm. um which just makes it easier yeah. that seems really interesting because it is relying on on people to kind of price out um you know price out what something's worth like what the nft is worth and i think you're going to get better pricing that way than an algorithm that you know like if they try and game the algorithm or you know we we've all seen smart contract failures or you know <laughs> exploits or stuff like that mm-hmm. um but i'm interested to see uh where did you guys pull any inspiration from was this like did you take a look at real estate i, I heard you say distressed nft like a like a distressed property um was there some inspiration in uh, taking that from real estate or anything anything inspired you guys inspired you guys yeah so the uh, like the initial Genesis of Abacus, as much as I would love it to be a story of us. <laughs> it's probably the real Genesis story. Mustard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was on a call with like a friend of mine um, and another person. And we were just talking about DeFi. And this was a while ago. This was probably a year ago. And we were just saying how it's, it's pretty cool how in DeFi, right, you can want a loan and get a loan in seconds you know you can go to one of these platforms and you get a loan right away you don't have to go jump through all the hoops Mm -hmm. going to a bank and then we were just transitioning over to nfts because that's like was all the rage at the time also and so the guy said wouldn't it be so cool like my friend said wouldn't it be so cool if you could tokenize a house in real life Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and get a loan at the same speed and I was like, yeah. yeah, that would be cool. And then the question, <laughs> the question became, how do you get that? How do you, how do you reliably get that value of that house or the perceived value of that house on chain in order to mm. be able to do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it came from. I just started thinking about that for a while. Once I kind of get a problem in my head, I just think about it for a long time and, and then came Abacus. <laughs> <laughs> and then born from your, your skull, basically Abacus is there. Um, yeah. Well, I'm curious uh, because they have started to tokenize or put um, houses for sale. I know there's one in Florida. I think they just did, but um, that are actually NFTs. Would that be something that maybe could be worked in down the road into Abacus or uh, mostly just I mean, uh, art? It could be worked in right away. Um, oh, right. Right. As long as there's like just mm-hmm. a collection. And mm-hmm. the one thing is like in terms of IRL, there needs to be some regulatory catch up, which is that if someone holds this 
NFT. It's essentially the deed to the property. Right. It's like tokenizing um, so like the deed, that. essentially. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. just to give the person who's buying it that guarantee. But I think once that happens and it's realized in the real world and in you know legislation, whatever, um, I 100% think that that will be a thing. In fact, I think it'll be like my my overview on nfts is like this art is great and these 10k collections or whatever mm-hmm. but the value of it is the same value that erc 20s brought to moving money mm-hmm. like the value of an erc 20 is that you can permissionlessly move money period you can mm-hmm. move these currencies with no one's permission mm-hmm. the point of a nft is to apply that same principle of moving something with no one's permission and now apply it to things. So applying it to a boat, to a car, to a house, to a watch or a ring or anything physical or anything unique in the real world. That's what the that's what I think the real power of an NFT is. And mm-hmm. so now imagine if you are BlackRock or one of these huge hedge funds or huge institutions, and instead of having to go on the open market and source buyers, you can go on something like OpenSea and literally just buy out you know, buy up a thousand NFTs mm-hmm. and you're buying a thousand homes in Phoenix, right? I think that's mm-hmm. where they were buying yeah. all these homes, you know, mm-hmm. and you have it. And not only are you buying them, but you have ownership of it within this, the length that it takes for a transaction to end. No escrow, no nothing. Mm-hmm. That's the, yeah. like, that's the, that's the power of an NFT in my opinion. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I'm waiting for too. It's yeah. like, I, I hate the, the, the home buying process. It's like so long, so archaic. It's like a lot of times, like just, I think just recently with COVID and stuff like that, they started not doing in-person stuff. Like before that you had to be like, you had to go in person to sign mm-hmm. these things. Like I know DocuSign just got popular, you know, a couple of years ago, but yeah, it just feels so archaic. And is that the is that would you say that's the ultimate vision for for Abacus Geo or or do you have some some ultimate vision that you could speak to like what this thing looks like you know a year two years down the line i.e. like a hundred two hundred years uh, in crypto space? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I hope that I think what will happen is a few things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Abacus will become an alternate way for people to speculate on NFTs. Mm-hmm. One without taking long-term NFT a long-term NFT position. For example, if you come in and speculate on the value of an NFT in Abacus, you leave with tokens essentially, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? You don't leave with an NFT, and so you can speculate on NFTs without having that long-term commitment to them. Right. Um, so that's one thing, which it basically gives people an avenue. But I think the bigger thing is to create like a, basically like a price matrix, which is you have pools open for all of these nfts and lending protocols can choose between multiple alternatives of what they want to use and mm-hmm. if they ever need to revert to abacus abacus will basically secure all of these loans that they're going to give out mm-hmm. and, and so sorry go ahead geo it's just like i think you know that's the that's the ultimate goal which is that it just creates this massive reliable price matrix and makes mm-hmm. NFT lending something powerful because I think, you know, you look at the real world, right? I don't know. I, I was I looked this up recently, and I think there was something like forty trillion dollars of actual currency in the world or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the value is held in assets. So, so like three hundred trillion dollars is held in assets. And I think something similar will happen here. Mm-hmm. But in order for that to happen, something like the ability to programmatically get these loans uh, in an efficient way so that people will actually take the loans. 
is incredibly important. And also, if you look at just the history of money, unlocking the time value of money is the thing that unlocks pretty much all of finance. Right. And so unlocking the time value of these assets is something that I hope will unlock, you know, a whole new spectrum of things. Yeah. And that brings up another point. I mean, Matthias and I have kind of spoken a lot about like unlocking the true liquidity of NFTs. But um, I think a point that you mentioned earlier about someone wanting to, you know, speculate on the value of an NFT without having to actually buy it. I mean, the, the more I think about it, the more I think like, you know, Abigus kind of allows people to fractionalize the the NFT by essentially putting whatever money they think towards this pool. And when the NFT sales on the on the on, you know, via auction, they get back their money plus like premium, assuming that it sells for more than it was that it was speculated at. Yeah, I mean, I think it I don't know if I would say it fractionalizes it necessarily because the traders never actually get a hold of it. Mm -hmm. maybe not fractionalizing it so to speak but it allows you to get like a piece of the ownership in the asset kind of instantaneously upon sale without having to purchase like the entire asset right it lets you yeah exactly Mm -hmm. it lets you speculate on the value of the asset without actually ever having to own the asset interesting yeah um and i think that's a kind of a powerful thing Mm I was going to ask, so did you guys have people in mind when you were building this out? Was it institution, retail? It seems like it's it would be a really interesting product for a few different groups, like people that just want to, I mean, I, I could see this where people are willing to lend just in the hope that they're maybe going to snipe, you know, a board ape or a punk at a, at a discount, um, you know, something that's like blue chip that, you know, they're going to be happy with, even if there's a, if they default on the loan. Um, was that who you were building it for? Or was there somebody in mind that you had uh, that you had in mind that you're building it for? Well, the the like the biggest customer that I had in mind was lending protocols. Mm-hmm. So we oh, ourselves don't lend, right? But they but mm-hmm. lending protocols do. And I think what happens is is that I mean, there's a lot of other things that have already sprouted out. You know, there's like some stealth projects that are being built on top of it. Um, but like the, the, the goal of Abacus was always to bridge this idea of decentralized finance and this world of NFTs that is pretty much rendered illiquid. Mm-hmm. That has always been the goal. Um, and so like as a natural, I guess, byproduct of that, the target was just make lending, make this efficient programmatic lending possible. Interesting. Um, yeah. Because it does seem like it's really going to get the velocity that like all the um, all the money that's just trapped in JPEGs basically out and moving in the market. And we know those people, you know, we know those people want to use that liquidity somewhere like if they if they bought a board ape, I'm sure they're looking for the next board ape that they want to invest in as well. Yeah, exactly. And it, it basically unlocks one you get, you know, it gives a way to actually earn some pretty low risk yield on ETH. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you take that zero to one position, you're playing mm-hmm. with ETH and you're earning some pretty low risk yield. Mm-hmm. Um, and two, it, um, I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> no, One's good enough anyway. So yeah. <laughs> I was, I was kind of curious, what kind of yields are we looking at for, for in that first position? Yeah. I mean, I have no idea to be honest with the way I, what I equated to is like mining, um, Ethereum or Bitcoin at the beginning, which is actually mm-hmm. what it's like mm-hmm. modeled after in terms of the growth of the network and everything. Um, oh. Like you can mine, like there's there's a rate of mining. So basically, if you think about Bitcoin and the way they have like they have like their hash rate, mm-hmm. right? 
So we don't do emissions directly for an action. We have a set amount of emissions every epoch, which is a two-week span. And people are mining distribution credits. So basically the proportion of those of those um, of those emissions. And so hmm. it depends one on the growth of the value of ABC because that's the mm-hmm. emission they get. But the interesting thing is that on top of the growth of that value, right, the question becomes, do you compound the interest that you get or the the yield that you get one if you stake that, right? Because if you stake it, you also get 90% of the revenues. Not greater than 90%, yeah. but it starts mm-hmm. at 90%, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, was, no, keep going because I was just going to have a, my next question was about the tokenomics. So go ahead. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. That's, that's like the, like just, I wouldn't be able to speculate on what the, the yield would look like because the value of the ABC can fluctuate. And it also depends on the, the level of liquidity um, mm-hmm. that yeah. comes through the system because that attributes to the ETH yield that's thrown off on the backside. Yeah, I mean, ninety percent is pretty generous too. I was gonna say, like, yeah, I'm huge. surprised you guys went that went that high. I mean, that's that's nice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd love to do honestly. I'd love to do. So basically, the way it breaks down is it's two percent for keepers, eight percent for like our treasury, um, and then the other ninety percent is for um, the other ninety percent is for the the stakers, the VABC holders, mm-hmm. but. I honestly, I wanted to give all 98%, but it makes sense to just kind of keep our treasury for a little bit until we don't need like operating costs anymore. And then we could just ramp that that up to the entire 98% that's left after paying the keepers. Mm-hmm. And I wow, guess before before getting into the, the actual tokenomics, can you speak a little bit to like where the project is at right now and, and when you see it being, you know, where, where you want it to be? Yeah, so it's pretty much... Um, done mm-hmm. for the most part um well congratulations right now, <laughs> yeah, i'm a, i'm i'm a little bit of a schizo so uh, it's hard for me to do like a feature freeze but mm-hmm. i gotta do it at some point so it's gonna be pretty soon um but basically we launched on the testnet and but we launched like a very ad hoc version of the testnet and the reason why is because the way I look at it is, you know, you have this idea of what Abacus is, but mm-hmm. in thinking of that idea, you need to carry the entire conceptual like frame of it, right? So you can't just think, oh, this is what I can do with it. This is what I earn. You read the white paper and you see all this extra thing, all these extra things that maybe you don't need to know to operate and to understand what you get from it. Mm-hmm. And so if you have this ad hoc test net, like the site that we have up is super basic. But the point of it is that people can now come and interact with it as if they're basically, they see what they need to do. They see what they get out of it. And they're, the rest of it is they're essentially just interacting with the black box. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it makes it a lot more, um, it makes it a lot more intuitive. And then they can go back and re-understand the conceptual piece now that they have a more fundamental understanding. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. one, once that part's done, um, what I'm doing, or what I guess this part's done now, um, is like created like a testnet game to simulate as as much as possible to simulate like real life a real life scenario, um, and so we're gonna like announce a little bit more about that. It's not like like a secret, but dropping alpha on here. Like, I like it. <laughs> <Alpha alert. laughs> like announce the, first here. 
like the winners of the the game will be the people who hold these testnet NFTs that we're going to release and the people who hold this testnet ABC. Um, and then whoever the top holders of the ABC and the, and the NFTs will split a total of like 400,000 ABC, uh, like real wow. ABC when we launch a token. Mm -hmm. And so that basically we created our own like ETH replica to simulate the use of ETH and like the entry to pools and, now people have something to actually like value the NFTs at, right? Because they can tie that value to a real life reward. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, now they'll play the game and, you know, they'll decide what to ape into pools with. They'll decide what to spend in the auctions and they'll attribute a real value to the auctions, even though it's just a testnet NFT. Um, mm -hmm. And so that part is going to be like a, that's like the next stage of the testnet. And then once the UI is all done, because the current UI is like, you know, we are, our guys just threw it together. Um, once the final thing is done, then we're going to release it all. We'll do, we'll release the token, do the public sale, and then um, start these credit bonds or get these credit bonds kicked off. Um, and then like a week or two later, we'll, we'll launch the first spot. Awesome. Uh, so you seem like a, you seem like a pretty thoughtful guy, man. I mean, a lot of the, the, a lot of the, the questions that you've begged and a lot of the things that you've talked about have been pretty thought provoking. And I think, you know, there's a lot of fluidity to them. Can you, can you speak to like one of the more fluid concepts in the space, which is community and like how you think that will play or how you want it to play into the project going forward? Yeah. I mean, the community is ultimately like incredibly important in mm -hmm. projects, I think. Um, however, I think it's like the reason why it's important is for the bad times, not necessarily for the good times, mm -hmm. right? A community one, you know, you gain a lot from them just because like they become your friends. Like a lot of people in the community are like, I genuinely consider them my friends. Some of the best times I've had in crypto have just been like shooting the shit in the discord and looking at some memes <laughs> and just like, yeah, exactly. we have like this thing, like we're like, whenever there's a newcomer who just comes in and says, when token, we'll just lead him right into like a D's nuts joke or something like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's just like a fun time. But I think, yeah. I think the importance of that is like when things go south, right? A friend is more forgiving than a business partner. Mm -hmm. um, and I also happen to think like community is really important maybe for like fun sentiment and more people joining and everything and teaching more people about it. However, like I'm a very big proponent of this minimal governance. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important. I think if we really want our systems to be autonomous, uh, it's incredibly important that one, they're incredibly specialized and that the governance powers that are distributed are very, very, very limited. Mm -hmm. um, for example, for example, with us, it's likely going to be limited to um, like gauge control and the rate of inflation. Once we hit the terminal rate, you know, they can decide between a 2% and 6% max and min. They can decide to move it within that range as they please. But other than that, there's, there's not really much more to, um, to like there's not much more governance decisions to be made and i think that's like the key to really becoming you know autonomous and mm -hmm. so the community is super important but uh, i think it's important to have a good product as well uh um, yeah you know one that oh, sorry. genuinely oh, go ahead. Yeah. their interest right yeah. speaking someone's interest is more important uh because then they'll come out out of genuine interest instead of coming out mm -hmm. of one token and then you have a good <laughs> time Went <laughs> That's what I was I was actually really excited to get your take on because a lot of people look at this like a decentralization, you know, I know decentralization is a huge thing, but 
Um, a lot of these protocols, it seems like, especially in the beginning, until they get their feet underneath them, like really need a strong governance, like a strong team behind them, like a benevolent dictator versus, you know, like a council where you're asking the community, like, you know, should we spend two grand for like a website designer, like vote, you know, vote today, like, <laughs> you know, so I'm curious what you see as like the benchmark of when you start letting the community kind of take over a little bit more. Um, I feel like I would put it as a little bit further, like, you know, products good, everything's, you know, dialed in, you have revenue, you know, like pretty far down the road um, compared to a lot of protocols. But where do you see that? Yeah, I mean, the way I look at it is like, what you do is you kind of run through the beginning with like exactly what you said, like a benevolent dictatorship, or if it's mm -hmm. multiple people, a council, and I've been like super transparent with my community about this too. It's like no secret, they all know. Right, which is that we're gonna at the beginning, what's gonna happen is is we're gonna decentralize this gauge control and like the terminal inflation rate thing doesn't really matter for like three years. Um, and what's gonna happen is we're just gonna, you know, there may be some parameters that can be changed. Like for example, we have a network fee and we have a vault closure fee and everything. And so we'll we'll just kind of oscillate between that. And I'm also very open in talking to them and most mostly if they suggest something that's really smart you know, we'll, we'll make that change. It's not like, like, because I'm, there's no official governance, they can't make a change. But the idea is that you basically just kind of oscillate between these, these different states of the protocol in terms of parameters you set. Um, and once you get to one where you feel it's like super stable and you go for long enough and you, you see that you don't need to be hands-on and protocols should be built so that the founder doesn't need to be so hands-on at the end of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think, I think that's when, that's when it's time to properly, you know, you give out the, you give out the power to the community and let them, let them kind of take it from there with guidance too. Yeah. You know, let them run it right into the ground. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like I letting mean, a teenager I... drive, you know, you're like, Oh geez, you know, put them behind the wheel. It's, it's a scary uh, scenario. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly. funny. We were, like, we were using this analogy in the last podcast. We were super analogy heavy. Matthias and I were joking about it, but uh, <laughs> we, we talked about this like benevolent dictator concept and how, like when you're, when you're building a project, it's kind of important to first, like build that ship, put the sails up, set sail, like let it, give it some direction. And then at some point down the line, you know, varying magnitudes of when that is, you kind of let the ship sail. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, mm -hmm. and even as time goes, you can give the community more say without, without completely giving them the entirety power of the vote, mm -hmm. you know, and that's just like, that's just comes in being a benevolent dictator and not being like a, you know, a power hungry dictator. Yeah. Right? Like a tyrant, <laughs> a tyrant yeah, exactly. over there, but not being a tyrant, you know? Yeah. And so well, that, Oh yeah, go ahead. That was it. That was it. Sometimes oh, I just cool, say cool. end so. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Man. Yeah. He's not I using mean, periods. He just uses end so. We just yeah, run exactly. on it. It's all good. <laughs> uh, well, that's what I, somebody was saying. I heard of another system where they're basically looking for, so you would have a team and then you just start looking for talented individuals that are in your community and you kind of decentralize um, where you're just pulling talented people. Like you got a great you know, front end dev, or you got a marketer over here, you got an ops guy, you got a whatever. Um, and you just pull people from the community up into more management roles. Um, but I wonder if you would ever really get to like full decentralization uh, with that kind of system. But it's interesting, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think I don't think you ever would. I think Yeah. And some things don't need to be by the way, 
Not everything mm-hmm. needs to be fully decentralized. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer that not everything needs to be fully decentralized because it's like it's great but i think things like protocols and services that are integral need to be but things that are heavily community based don't necessarily need to be right mm-hmm. like an investment yeah. DAO doesn't need to be completely decentralized you probably should have some people at the head of it that run the operation of it that you know are the ones that go out and source deals and everything mm-hmm. because most people if you have 60 70 people running something everyone's going to think someone else is going to do it even if they're technically all <laughs> Yeah. Right. And so you need people that step up. But for something like, like, you know, a service based protocol, you don't necessarily need that management piece. Right. Because the way I look at it is like back to that idea of building things that are autonomous, you should build them in credit in an incredibly specialized way. Like, for example, and Fisk is actually, you know, he's, I'm going to give a shout out to him because I love Fisk. He's the man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he, we were talking and he, I was just like kind of spitballing one of my schizo ideas. And um, <laughs> he just said, he's like, remember, like you want this minimal governance. It's important to keep things simple. And like, the, it, it, it is very, and like the reason why that like made a lot of sense to me and it kind of resonated, although I'm sure it resonates in many ways with different people was because you should build things that so that there are building blocks that will be built on top of them that are just as specialized and therefore all of the blocks individually are autonomous and so the entire system is autonomous mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so if you build a right if you build let's say you have abacus at the bottom of it and then you have these lending protocols that are incredibly specialized and for lending and they're not planning on doing these crazy expansions without the crazy expansions you don't necessarily need a management team right? because you build it for the long term. And then if you want to build something else, go ahead, build another, another block in the stack. Mm-hmm. Right. And make that one specialized and autonomous. Yeah. So then the um, system becomes complex, but the building blocks that build that system are simple. Everything it's, exactly. it's much sturdier that way. Yeah. Right. They're all simple. Then they all are autonomous mm-hmm. because they're not expected to, pull some rabbit out of the hat and do some crazy, you know, some crazy new thing. Mm-hmm. It's known that this is exactly what it's for. This is exactly what it will do. And it will do this forever. And this is what the, the emissions chart will be. This is what X will be. This is what Y will be. And this is the service that it will give to people forever on its own. Yeah. It's uh, super interesting. I mean, that's really only something um, really possible in web three, I think. You know what I mean? I can't imagine starting, you know, a, a fast food restaurant and be like, I'm just going to train everybody once and they're just going to stay here forever. <laughs> you know, yeah. never hiring more people at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the, that's kind of like the, the, um, value prop, you know? Yeah. There are certain things that if you properly decentralize them, you take away management costs and also you take away like this principal agent problem too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that's where like you make up for the maybe inefficiency of like databases and all this stuff that people talk about when bashing on web three, that's where you make up for it because maybe you have a more efficient pay. You don't have a middleman who's, you know, skimming five or 10% off of what, let's say, for example, Uber, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have a middle, if you have like some, I don't know, some decentralized Uber or whatever that will do for the world, right? You have, you don't have a middleman who's taking the money from the driver and charging the person extra right the driver just gets yeah. the money mm-hmm. 
you know. Um, although I, I, I'm, I kind of feel bad using that example because, like, I'm a big believer that we should kind of try and move the world forward. Not in, like, a whole utopian way, but, like, that's how you get the, <laughs> a, No, like, that's how you get the attention to, to crypto, right? Mm-hmm. If you do yeah. things that actually help the world, then people will use them. Like, we shouldn't expect people to come... Like, we shouldn't expect people to come use things in crypto if it doesn't add anything to their life. Like, they yeah. never will, and they shouldn't. Like, it makes no sense that they would. Um, <laughs> makes so, yeah, it makes <laughs> sense that they never would be. Like, it's it's that's why I tell people, if you don't want decentralization, and you don't want, like, this kind of everything that kind of comes along with all these projects, like, then just use a regular bank. Like, there's this is not, like, long-form banking. Like, we need to do something different here. Like, we don't need another, you know, lending or another DeFi protocol. We need something like innovative, like like the NFT lending. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty yeah, interesting I mean, that people still come here. Yeah, but it's also like there's also all, like you know all the, the benefits of being self custodial and you mm-hmm. know with all the shit that's been going on in the world, you know, not being not having your entire life kind of locked down by on the whim of a government or whatever. And I'm not like an anarchist, but like. You guys get the point. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, but I'm close. I'm not an anarchist, but you know, maybe if you guys are, I could be a little bit. <laughs> I think everyone in the, I think everyone in the space has a little bit of that anarchist blood in them, right? <laughs> you gotta be, you gotta be yeah. a little bit, right? Like yeah. permissionless. You're like, and nobody can tell me shit about yeah. my money. Like, you know, no one's gonna the fault you on Web three for saying the word anarchy. Yeah, yeah no, like it's no fine. Taking my shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Well, cool. I mean, I think. Uh, was there any other questions about app? Because we could uh, we could kick that off into more of a macro macro talks and stuff like that as well. But well, I don't want to. I don't want to reel us back to you know something more specified. But I guess before we get to like the macro side, I did I did want uh, Geo to speak a little bit on like the token, the ABC and EDC, and kind of how those play into the project. Um, mm. Yeah. Obviously, like for anyone that's listening, you could go to the white paper and check it out. But I think it would be cool to get Geo to give him give us his layman's uh, explanation yeah. of how that works. Reading, yeah. no thanks. Let's yeah, go ahead exactly. and do that. I'm not gonna. Version. Yeah, the second <laughs> I say the second I say white paper on on the podcast, I'm like, no one's going to no one's going to listen to us. <laughs> Reading's always an option. It's <laughs> yes. just never taken. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. never yeah. taken. Matthias and have everything read for him by his Spotify yeah, I- app. <laughs> Dude, I'm nice so app. surprised. I don't even know how to read. Usually, when I write things, I just write. Them like, <laughs> I don't know how to. I don't know how to read either. Otherwise, I'd be doing articles instead of podcasts. <laughs> We're all literate here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're DJs here. It's the DJN home home base right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, on the this tokenomics, like, I kind of copied. I'm like a big believer of like. You look at things that have been done. And then you just kind of tweak them and like you, you learn from their, their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So you look at something like, um, and actually Zeus is the one who told me this. <laughs> so if he wants to rant about this, he could, <laughs> but like you look at things, you look at different like economic schemes of, you know, you have deflationary tokens, you have tokens that hit a set, a set supply, mm-hmm. you have inflationary tokens, Right. If you think mm-hmm. about what who do they all benefit, right? Who does a deflationary token benefit? They benefit the users the that are holding that it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and they don't have to. Get, they don't have to do anything. Right? Yeah, they literally don't have to do anything, and they just make money. Okay. Now you think about this, right? The 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 cap, the hard cap. Who does that benefit? In a different same way, same people. <laughs> it still benefits the same people. Yeah. So you're you're benefiting the people 
that are that have no responsibility to continue to contribute to your network. That seems mm-hmm. a little off. And this, uh, all credit is used for this one because because he uh, he's the guy who like brought this to my attention in a little rant that he had. <laughs> so if it goes bad you're like it's zeus's fault as well if it goes well then i was inspired by zeus if it goes bad i can't believe zeus told me about this <laughs> yeah, careful dude this is this is crypto blasphemy good, remember <laughs> yeah exactly oh, number go up dude number go up <laughs> <laughs> yeah we need but, to go um, up. but anyways like so that's one thing that I that I like wanted to apply to this, and that's why we have a terminal rate. Um, so that's one thing. And then the reason why I chose to use this this like epic distribution credits instead of like just a straight emission is because I'm also a believer that most protocols, if you were to look at the amount of tokens that they've emitted and the price of their emission and the price per token, um, either at the time of when it was emitted or now um they are likely at a negative net gain in terms of how much the product how much money the protocol has, has generated how much like revenue slash profit the protocol mm-hmm. has generated mm-hmm. um and the reason why is because you know you just emit things for capital that's not even being used right and so yeah. you have these people that are coming and farming a ton and you're not getting any service out of it so you're not providing the service you get the asset that you want but there's not enough. There's not enough demand, even though there's plenty of demand. You're paying out more that to the people that are giving you the asset than the money that you're taking in. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, you're at a negative. Mm-hmm. Only um, makes sense in DeFi, right? Like nowhere else would you would that even like be considered? <laughs> yeah, because like in DeFi, you're just printing the money, right? So you mm-hmm. say, you know, I have a. $30 billion TVL and you just print the money and no one bats an eye. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I wanted to kind of apply here was you need emissions because we basically follow, you know, you're using like a consensus mechanism. And so the way to reward these people is by giving them the emissions that lead to larger benefits in the network, i.e. paying the network fees, staking it for these VE and the gauge control and boosting the emissions and then getting, you know, the revenue share and this, this governance power. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I didn't want to have that where it's like people can just go into a pool and they can just stay there and they farm. It, it should be mm-hmm. something where it's like a reactive, it's like reactive to demand the amount that's, that's emitted slash the cost that they're being emitted at. And so that's what this EDC slash, you know, Epic emission scheme does. Right. If there's a ton of, supply and a lot of people want these abc then the emission cost per abc will react to that mm-hmm. right so it's, it's essentially it's like it's like d- dynamic pretty much right mm-hmm. if there's not enough if there's not a lot then the people who do provide the liquidity will gain even more benefit again it's dynamic because as they should right because mm-hmm. they're taking on more of a burden um, and so, I mean, that, that was the goal there. And then the, the cool thing that I didn't realize would happen is now what you can do is you essentially make this idea of, okay, everyone is participating for the same pool of emissions. Now you can increase and decrease yields 
through simply increasing and decrease the rate at which they get these distribution credits. Because if I get, you know, if I get these credits for half of what you got them for, I'm getting these ABC for half of what you're getting them for. Yeah. And those ABC are being backed by this value that's this revenue that's being basically, they're not backed, but the revenue that's being paid to the shit, to the current ABC holders mm -hmm. is essentially a payment for this, this inflation that's about to come. Um, and so, so that's kind of, that's kind of why I chose it because now what happens is, you know, you, we can introduce this thing, these things like credit bonds, right? Mm -hmm. So what's a credit bond? If you, the question in Abacus is, will we get enough liquidity to properly provide the service? That's the question. Because right. if yeah. the liquidity comes, then the service is properly provided. And then, you know, this, whatever these flywheel mechanics start and you know, we're all going to make it. Yeah. <laughs> Self-generating. <laughs> uh, Infinite money then. Perfect. Yeah. We're just, we're just printing over yeah. here. <laughs> so right, that's like the variable factor, right? Like, that's like the question, the risk of the protocol. And so what these credit bonds do is they say, they say to people, right? Prospective uh, traders, let's call them, mm -hmm. right? What they say to them is if you're confident that you're going to come and play in this, in this, uh, in this upcoming epic or epoch, right? Mm -hmm. Then you give us that guarantee of liquidity by basically when you bond your ETH, you're basically pledging that you're going to use it in the next epoch. And in exchange, we're going to boost your, your distribution credit emissions in comparison to everyone else. Hmm. And we yeah. could do that, right? Because that translates to a better rate at which you're getting these ABC. Mm -hmm. um, and then another cool thing that could happen from that. And again, this is all because we have this epic distribution credit buffer right. in between right in between the emission time and when they're actually participating something else that you can do is on that back to that idea of like who does inflation benefit right you don't want incumbents to be comfortable just sitting there producing nothing for the network because yeah. that's a tax right if an incumbent mm -hmm. is sitting there and getting some form of some form of yield and not producing anything that's a tax right. it's like in in like the normal world we have i forgot it's like um something burden on the economy which is like people that you have to take care for that you have to take care of that aren't able to work it's like burden on the economy doesn't sound very nice but the point is, is that that's the case right they're not adding right. anything but you need to pay for their medical bills and all this stuff and so that's basically what that's basically what an inactive incumbent is you just need to give them some yield because they did something before and great they're not going to they're not going to give any further services they're just going to sit there and farm yeah, and that's so, what I'm curious. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So what we do now is we basically, extend, like in the tweet, I didn't say that it extended to this because I decided to do this a little later on. What <laughs> we do now is is that those credit bonds extend to this ETH yield that you receive for as a VE holder. So mm. now the incumbents, I mean, they'll still earn something because they did provide a service, right? But what happens is, is that if I'm, in, if I'm someone who has VE and I'm, active i.e i'm bond i can decide okay i'm going to continue bonding and what do you get for bonding your yield your ethereum yield so let's say there's two million dollars of ethereum that's going to be distributed your proportion of that eth is increased 
because you basically your bond is now coming back to boost your your like um your technical ve count of that epoch mm-hmm. and so the in, so if i get mine if me and you know let's say me and steve have the same amount of ve abc mm-hmm. and we locked it for the same amount of time if if steve boosts let's say to the threshold just because like it's like an easy number like an easy number to work with right mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. steve will receive two times the amount of ethereum that i received in when receiving that that revenue share mm-hmm. wow right that's huge and so, <laughs> yeah and so but the, the point there is that it punishes me because i'm inactive right even yeah. though i'm still earning the eth i'm doing nothing for the network steve is doing something for the network or he's pledging to do something for the network so steve gets rewarded over me yeah and it seems like you've kind of the the idea behind all of this is like you're building this mechanism where everyone that is taking part in it all of the cogs in this sort of machine have the opportunity to constantly be doing something even in those periods of time where nothing is technically going on yeah exactly yeah and it incentivizes them to further do it and then there's this is honestly my favorite part about doing this stuff is like like people kind of assume that you know everything about what something you're building but mm-hmm. the truth is like i don't and i'm convinced that most people who are building things don't Mm-hmm. like yeah. every day I, I, <laughs> like i'm like working on the like if i'm building something new in the code or just thinking about something like you learn something new either you learn it about like the way mechanics work in the general world of crypto or in the general you know larger world of economics mm-hmm. uh you just learn more about the incentives and then you also learn like cool things about maybe why something works right um and it's that's that's like my favorite part of this song. No, it's interesting too. And I feel like it's it's funny because I feel like philosoph like so much philosophy is kind of stitched into the web three space right now. Like the opportunity, or I guess bringing it back to your analogy, right? Like when you're building something, you have an idea of what you want it to be, but you don't necessarily, and like you said, you're kind of convinced that this is the case with everyone. And and I feel the same way too. Like you don't necessarily know what that end product is going to look like. Mechanically speaking, you don't necessarily know like how it's going to work in the end. You have an idea of how you want it to operate you have an idea of what makes it work and you but you don't necessarily have a hundred percent formed idea of what that thing will look like down the line and i think that that's just further accentuated or exacerbated by the fact that like web3 is is such that everyone that's participating in the project is is constantly like trying to think of new ways to do things the person that's behind the project you in this case is constantly trying to think of new ways to do things and in so doing those things is discovering like new opportunities for that mechanism new ideas that drive that mechanism like it's it's such a it feels like you're breaking something down to like its cellular form when you're working on a web3 project like even just getting involved in shogun war with matthias like i've learned so much about economics like even psychology like you have to think about all of your projects from a psychological and a philosophical standpoint as well as like from an economical standpoint and i think Mm -hmm. like it's it's interesting because like the more time you spend on a web3 project the more you start to understand these things that you would never think before getting into it kind of play the role in that project i don't know if i got way too hyper general or way too uh, (laughs) way way too philosophical there but I, i just thought it was an interesting point no, I mean, I was sure. telling somebody about that the other day. I was like, you can basically in Web3, you can watch economies rise and fall so fast that it wouldn't be practical to do it in real life. Like you exactly. can see people start something. Thank you for, and thank you for working my idea in much simpler terms. <laughs> shorten it down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's all good, but it makes sense, right? Yeah. Oh, what yeah, were you going to say to you? I was going to say like that was the, what he was talking about was like the original draw for me to this crypto world. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is that like uh it's like takes it's like this this beautiful combination of like all these different things of like economics and like you have to get into people's heads like in mm-hmm. kind of psychology and like you know there's coding and then there's the math part of it all which just like comes together to form this like incredible even if it all implodes <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> even if it goes to zero we like, had fun yeah, we had fun, and we learned like, we learned like a lot yeah. like you know you you go around and you see what people learn in school and you know whether you finished it or you didn't it's just a nut a next level of understanding and when you see exact like exactly what you guys were saying you know you have these essentially micro economies that are experiments that last a year they last a month if they're a rug pull they last a few days at best you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but yeah. from those you learn what happens at different inflation rates what happens in hyperinflation what happens over the long run when you have these different incentive structures for people to come in and do certain things right right for example you know people talk a lot about what happens late in the bitcoin world when maybe they're not they're not able to pay miners so much so mm-hmm. that's another thing, right? What happens mm-hmm. when these things run out? How do people react to that? How do, what are the adjustments that are made? These are all things that up until now, you've only been able to see by, let's say, studying the history of something, mm-hmm. you know, some longstanding financial institution or a bank or country. But now you have it all crunched into for, you know, 12 years, five years, two months, whatever yeah. it is. And, um, and that's the really cool part of it all. Yeah, it's crazy because I feel like, you know, you have like, let's say you have this like accordion, right? Let's call this accordion like, you know, the Corpo, like Web2 world, right? And like the accordion is like a project lifecycle, like X company, right? And it's like what you would experience, what you would learn as, you know, just a cog in that company gets and like, let's use this accordion analogy again, like you're squeezing it down to like a period of like two months, three months where like you are being exposed to and you are learning uh so much more in such a faster period of time and then it's compounded and multiplied like you know if you're working on multiple projects if you're part of multiple projects like that thing that product life cycle you are experiencing in like such a condensed amount of time that like it's just a a byproduct like something you don't necessarily intend to do but like you just learn and i think that that's like one of the things that's been so valuable about you know working in web3 and and in uh being a part of the space yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I think the other advantage people get is that they have some skin in the game. So like mm-hmm. normally when they have skin in the game for an investment or something like that, um, but a lot of people with Web3 actually have a very ground level like uh, attachment to it too. There's not that many people in it or something mm-hmm. like that. So they see like, oh, the you know the management management's going to spend this much money on something and they're like, oh no, I don't want to do that. Um, and they start getting really attached to things and they get a lot more skin in the game so they can see, they, they start caring. If they're in other things where they're like, oh, I'm invested in Amazon, they're like, yeah, Jeff's got it. He probably knows what he's doing. <laughs> but here, everyone's like, no, no, I need to have a, a vote or a say or something. But um, yeah. I really wanted to ask um, Gio actually one thing, which was um, how much do you think people that are kind of vampiring uh, like a, a project, you know, like, people that are just kind of drain net net on the community or on the system, how much should they be punished by the protocol or or how much, you know, yeah. How much should they be punished? What's, what's the maximum? What do you think? Like, you know, what's acceptable? What's kind of not like, I know some people don't do anything and some people could make it to where, you know, if they don't do anything, then uh, they don't add any value. Then they get like no money. (laughs) They don't get any value out then. What do you think? 
You mean like the people who create like forks? Yeah, I mean that's the fork ones are interesting because they're basically taking over something they don't really know what they're doing with too. Yeah. But I was thinking like LPs or something that just sit there and all they do is just farm and dump or oh, yeah. um, guys that got in really early, like we were talking about, just drains on the on the economy. Yeah. So the honest truth is, and it's like I don't know if it's like if this is an opinion that others have. I know some mm-hmm. people that I've spoken to have them, like. It's a drain on the economy, but I think if the opportunity is there, then you should do it. Mm-hmm. For example, yeah. like I think with exploits on protocols, I think they're fine. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't necessarily think a protocol should be bailed out if they get exploited. Right? It's it's yeah. in, it's their it's like their responsibility to create something that won't get exploited. Mm-hmm. And do you do you believe right? in that because it's like the growing pain of of building something? Yeah, it's the growing pain of building something, and I think it. Re- I think it makes others like seeing things like that makes others think, "Oh shit, maybe I should spend more time thinking about my tokenomics, mm-hmm. thinking about you know looking through my code, properly combing through things, properly testing things." Even though I'm a big proponent of test and prod, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the point is, the point is, is that like everyone wants to live in this web three world where ownership is distributed among everyone and everyone has a say. But when something goes wrong, everyone wants someone <laughs> to come, you know, the big brother to come bail them out. Right. Everyone right. has a say, but nobody has responsibility. Yeah, basically. no one has responsibility. <laughs> no one, you know, if something goes wrong, everyone's just going to leave or dump. No one's going to stay yeah. around, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think it's something like you want to live in this world, then you better be ready for what, what it comes with. And so I think mm-hmm. if you build something where someone can just sit there and idly farm doing nothing... You better be ready for that. You better understand that that will happen. And you should tell yourself and have a good reason of why that won't adversely affect your protocol and why that won't hurt you in the long run. Mm-hmm. Right? I think as if a protocol, you, you should like like a gear against that. Like, okay, if we have somebody just sitting there and dumping, like we have a way to lower their incentives or something or... Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, That's I, what I was curious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, I don't think it's, I think it's a net negative. For people yeah. who do that mm-hmm. right yeah totally the, yeah the problem is is that like you know when you start doing things where you can find a farmer and just like you know decrease something let's say decrease a rate you might hurt other like it may cascade into hurting other things mm-hmm. that need that rate right yeah um and so things should be built where fine someone could come farm but if they do come farm this is why it's you know it's not necessarily a net negative like i'll give you an example with abacus okay Mm. if you own an nft that is within like you have to basically an abacus the reason why things will be will have whitelisted collections is because you can't have an infinite amount of collections because then anyone can come and create their own nft and if they create their own nft then they can just farm their own pool so everyone will just they won't want to take on any risk they'll just go farm their own pool mm-hmm. okay and so that's bad because you don't have any you don't have any supply going you know concentrating into pools that aren't theirs okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. however when you create when you have a finite amount of whitelisted collections what happens is is you have the people who don't own nfts in those collections and want to farm okay so those people you have the people that genuinely want 
leverage on their, you know, or they genuinely want to borrow on their NFTs. So they won't, you know, farm their own NFTs. But then you have the third class of people that maybe they just want to come in and farm. And so they'll have an NFT and they'll dump a bunch of money in it and they'll just farm for a little while, right? They don't have any risk. So they're just farming with no risk. But why does that not hurt us really? The reason is because you're not farming and getting your money back. You're farming and in order to get that farmed, let's say ABC, you need to pay the protocol, all of the money that you used to farm it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so while people are getting these rates, it's not increasing the emissions. In fact, it's actually increasing the value of the emissions, right? Which makes people who are coming in outside of that, of that circle, they want to actually come in and farm these ABC so that they can get those, those ABC and they can stake it and they can be on the receiving end of that large farmers of that large farmers revenue generated. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, that's something that, yeah, it could happen. But it's not necessarily a net negative on the system because it's just producing more revenues and incentivizing people to want to come and get ABC even more. Mm-hmm. Makes it popular, basically. And that's what I was curious, like some of the I know some protocols on Terra, I think like Astroport and those, they'll let, and, and, you know, Curve and stuff like that will let you lock like VE tokens for years. Have you guys thought about that? Any pros, yeah, we're cons? Not. I think that's I think that's terrible, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Agreed. I think. <laughs> VE has a lot of problems. One is that incumbent tax, pretty much. Mm-hmm. We want to coin it as that. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> sounds good to me. Is, another one is we, you're right, we haven't even really seen a four-year horizon of DeFi protocols. And so yeah. the fact that someone could lock up their tokens for four years and they basically can be like, yeah, well, fuck this. I don't have to think about this anymore. You know, it's not like it's we could be at zero benefit. in four years. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, but it's like it's, it's not in the benefit because now someone can come right. in, they lock it up for four years, they get this max boost, and then they just kind of forget about the tokens. But since they're a big enough holder, right, they get the other benefits, and so they don't even care about the tokens at, at some point. Right, and then they'll dump um, too. Essentially, they can just try and get their cost basis to zero over a four-year period where they're just dumping constantly on your protocol, right? Yeah, I mean, they could dump, but, like, they're, they're locked up for four years. But, like, the point is, is that, like, right, they're locked up for those four years, but now everyone thinks those tokens are gone because it's mm-hmm. a four-year time horizon, but they're not. Right. So now yeah. people are looking at this protocol as if, oh, shit, those tokens are all burned. But in reality, they're going to be come, they're going to come right back into the ecosystem in four years. Yeah. Yeah saturate supply right away it's like that's in like forever though that's way too far i mean some of these it is pretty funny though people do think that like fully diluted value is a meme like you know four years is so far from now but you know it'll be on us before we know it if they make it that far if they make it that far but like you know it's just it just i think it's four years just really really doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and so so yeah i mean ours is our our max (laughs) is four months our min is two weeks yep yeah so that's um, long enough for people to really like you they're still engaged they're still like active participants and they can't just like well they could walk away but you know four years is going to be or a, even a year is probably way too i mean DeFi space moves so fast like i can't imagine locking it for four years or even like a year it's it just feels yeah. like so long <laughs> it's also like if you think about it right if you have a four-year horizon then mm-hmm. what happens is, is that like 
maybe you're okay with making with making decisions that may adversely affect the price of the token over the next year and benefit you more because you're basically betting mm-hmm. that two years later it'll just rebound right back to what it is mm-hmm. right so you're not willing to like make things that will destroy it but you're willing to make things that are maybe not in the best in the best you know uh interest, interest of the protocol, the protocol. Right. Yeah. a big example a big example is convex Mm-hmm. If you look up, and this was another thing that Zoo showed me, <laughs> if you look up, if you look up the convex curve chart, mm-hmm. you'll see that wasn't really the best relationship in that other day for a curve. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a like, vampire, right? Like from the start, or... it's pretty much just a vampire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's it's really uh, interesting these models though that people will take on, but you know they're not toxic in every form of them. Kind of like a little bit of poison, mm-hmm. you know. Like it's good to kind of you're, you're trying to align those people with the protocol's um, best interests, but not have them as just like dead weight on you as well. Right. It's a tough battle. Yeah. Like it's a uh, competition versus monopoly kind of a situation. Mm-hmm. Right. You've got a mm-hmm. bunch of different firms competing over something. You actually end up with like a really optimal situation if it's one guy that owns the entire thing then you just kind of extract right you want that competition yeah important that you have a bunch of different entities kind of buying over instead of like Mm -hmm. you know at this point with curve it's like there's no point in like owning curve like that i feel like that's why that relationship (laughs) exists there like what's the point you know just go to convex Mm -hmm. yeah exactly which definitely damages curve then it's like but then how do you go, I mean, is it salvageable or is it just like curves dead and you kind of move on? Like if that happens to your protocol, how do you kind of navigate that? Can you then go back and put something into the governance or pass something that just says like the people that are unlocked are locked for four years. Now their principle even goes down in, you know, like, you know, there's some kind of negative thing to them. That's what I was kind of asking. Like how hard can we go after people that are a net negative on the protocol? It is definitely but I don't know, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. really have an answer there. It's definitely hard to find. <laughs> we all just expect Zeus to have the answers. Yeah, Zeus, yeah. if you could just tell us like you did Geo, please, some you know, pearls of wisdom here <laughs> when you're handing them out. So we're, we're here for it. But no, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I feel like everybody gets into the game fight, whether they're DeFi or not, they're in a game theory environment. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like ways to structure at the beginning where. It's like, you know, what Zeus was saying, which is you structure it so that there's not one convex, but there's maybe five or 10 of them. Right. I, you know, I think that's the thing, even, right? All the thinking has to happen at the beginning. Yeah, it has to happen at the beginning so that you have these different, you know, cartels that are kind of have the interest in, in owning a lion's share of it. And since they all have the interest, they're all competing with each other. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you know, you have all the smaller players or the, whales who are also owning portions of it and you kind of avoid that you know that scenario where one protocol just basically ate up 50 percent of your or approaching let's say 50 percent of your your tokens and now you know mm-hmm. you, just, you just can't salvage it you just gotta just let it ride for the next 300 years <laughs> <laughs> yeah well I mean, it's definitely hard because you do have this i mean i think we see it all over the place these like 80 20 kind of rules where you know, 20% of the people are, are making 80% of the money or, or, you know, doing, you know, 80% of the work, whatever it is. So it seems like that plays out in DeFi as well, where you have people that just, you know, they saw the opportunity first and they just conviction, you know, like Tetranode, I think he was in the big in the curve and, and convex and stuff. 
um, you know, there's there's no way to kind of dislodge those people either, right? So it's kind of inevitable, or is it inevitable? I don't know. Yeah, I think it kind of is inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just a matter of like, how soon does it happen? And mm-hmm. how well have you spread it out so that the competition's properly there? So yeah. like, if you have 10 of them, that's still like an 80-20, right? Where 10 people own 50% of the supply or 10 people own 40 or 30% of the supply. But if mm-hmm. none of them are owning 50%, it's still a viable option slash opportunity for someone to get a significant amount of voting power by coming in and buying however much or farming however much. Whereas if you have to compete with someone who their, their like goal is we will own this and we will never give it up. And you have to somehow get the other 50% from everyone else in order to compete with them. Right. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot harder to, to, to like pull, to pull out. Well, it's interesting too. Like, I think a lot of people run into this where they're thinking ideologically, but not practically. So, like, what I mean by that is like, people are like, oh, well, you know, there's whales and they shouldn't get as much, you know, like it should be, you know, everybody should have a say. But realistically, like, you know, a whale versus shrimp, like the whale is worth more to the protocol, right? So it's like they are kind of actually better for the pro. I mean, they're, they're, they should kind of have more say. Well, I think it I, depends on what the, weird, the right? whale's doing, right? Because, I mean, if the whale is just not doing anything, then, then the shrimp kind of matter because the shrimp are all competing and they're and the, that's where the flow happens, right? Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I the, the like, whale really is going to have... Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I feel like you could create some kind of like size-adjusted time value of money there. Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. it's like, okay, how, how much is the person extracting relative to what they've contributed? Um, right. And then you size that up. Um relative to the scale where like i don't know that could be a cool thing like yeah just try <laughs> to think be through, like, you know <laughs> try to like scale people up and down based on like how they behave um well that'd be interesting if you could target it where basically like let's say two people are staked and they both have 100 tokens and then everybody's if each person like a and b a is restaking their tokens taking their rewards and restaking them or even just holding on to them and b is actually dumping them that B actually then starts to scale less rewards over time because it's attached to their wallet. I don't know if that's like something that's possible, but <laughs> sounds interesting, at least to me. <laughs> how do we go after these guys? That's what I'm asking. How do we <laughs> how do we harpoon these whales that are malignant whales, you know, like that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think yeah. it's, I, I don't know. I think honestly, and then after this, uh, I got to head out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, someone said it. And I don't know, maybe they're talking about this whole Elon Musk thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which is that like, if you want a decentralized world, like it can't be one where if some guy wants to come in and spend enough money to buy it and they, they get it, they're mm-hmm. just like, oh, fuck this person. We're just going to cut him out. That's not like, that's not like what decentralization is. If anything, that's what like the censorship part that everyone's trying to avoid is. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The point is, is that they sh- that it should be structured that they can't. But if someone does and they start doing and they start doing adversarial things, then you do it. Yeah. But you don't do it as like a preemptive strike on someone. You know, I don't think you should do it as a preemptive strike on someone, because in the end of the day, most of these protocols without these whales providing a certain level of liquidity would be nothing. Right. That's just yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the volume, just like you were saying, like, you know, Abacus needs to reach a certain volume, it's kind of like escape velocity or a certain liquidity depth that makes the protocol work. 
So there is some utility there for just having like a large, you know, whale sitting there, but um, you definitely don't want to incentivize just people to just sit there and not add any value as well. So it's a, it's a definitely a tricky, tricky issue. Yeah. And there's also like, you know, there's also, this is like one of the cool things that'll happen with Abacus, I think, which is there's a lot of ways where you can like mobilize the smaller people to like kind of compete with whales. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, you know, you could do things where, uh, you could do things where you, you basically, like for example, uh, Gradient is coming out with this thing, um, which is basically like a urine strategies for, for abacus pools. And I think this is also a cool thing. It's it's, it's funny that a lot of people where is a lot of people look at this like entire stack of lending, and say if you're in any part of it, you're inherently in competition with mm -hmm. all the mm -hmm. other with people in all the other stacks. Right, yeah. like people will come into our Discord and be like, you know, so what do you guys think of JPEG as as competition, mm -hmm. or what do you guys think of uh, Upshot as competition? And the truth is, they're not competition. Not like they're not, you know, good protocols. We can all work together, right? Right, it's not complimentary. Like idealistic, not, not, yeah, but like not in like this idealistic way. Like let's all hold hands and kumbaya, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's that like, for example, with Upshot. You know, it would be cool if we can provide analytics to people that want to come trade in pools, right? So mm -hmm. it's not just like these big, you know, these big players have these analytics and these these quants. It's that all the little players who want to come and play individually, they have access to these analytics too. Or, for example, you know, with Gradient, right, or JPEG or any lending protocol, you know, Unlocked too. Unlocked is another person who uh, is planning on using us, right, so that their group. Of people and they're planning mm -hmm. on using us as well mm -hmm. right with all of these lending protocols too there's no it's not in competition it's complementary right. right they can use us as one tool of you know liquidation strategies they can use us as an arbitrage opportunity for when they do liquidate people mm -hmm. right we have uh fees that we give to the owners of these nfts so they can basically you know they can create self-repaying loans they can use it to uh they can use it to generate yield for these nfts for them, they can use it to generate yield for these NFTs for the protocols themselves. There's all these different things, which are, it's all just like the whole stack is complementary of one another. Right, not, yeah. This isn't to say like the lending protocols aren't in competition with each other because they are. And it's kind of nuts. There's like 30 of them out there. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny. It seems like everything dropped today too. Yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah. The, the point is, is that like the idea of like if you're in this stack, you're inherently in competition. I think that's something that like it's like uh, I think it'll happen at some point where people see people using each other, right? The whole idea is where crypto is composable. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> that's supposed to be the goal, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's something we'll see. But anyways, dude, this, this I'm gonna is push a pleasure. back a little. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, here yeah. we go. Gio, you're I, not allowed to leave yet. Cisco. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's uh it's competitive, but I don't think that that's a bad thing. Um, I, I think that competition might be looked at as a bad thing if you're dealing with like a zero sum environment of everyone fighting over the same resources. And in mm -hmm. that case, it's like okay, you know, if they're in competition with me, that's a bad thing. Um, you know, I think that the reality is that like there's a a ton of growth potential that like you know nft lending like doesn't exist today you know so yeah. kind of like the sky's mm -hmm. the limit um and it kind of goes back to the same conversation as with like curve and convex right where like the healthiest market is a competitive market right. um you know yeah. like the the whole space moves forward further 
if there are people competing with each other versus like a single platform that dictates how lending works and no one else is able to compete with them. And then you end up with some product that like maybe isn't the best one. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're here for the competition. Know, but yeah, I know we got to. Yeah. Good competition. I actually a hundred percent agree with that. I will say. <laughs> yeah. No, I know you guys got to run. I don't think so. you were really saying like, uh, contrary to that. That's funny. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you yeah, guys I are mean, on the same page. We know. The, oh. Like the reason why I think that's a, that's like an important point for people to understand what he said mm -hmm. is because if you think about it, like imagine if in, if in DEXs, right, all DEXs shared liquidity. So you had yeah. one massive ETH USDC pool. You had one massive, you know, whatever other pools there are out there. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> but imagine how much deeper the liquidity would be. And they were, that means there's like, you know, less like less i guess it's called slippage let's say right yeah less slippage yeah like, <laughs> there's just there's just less you know there's less like uh, inefficiencies but the point is is that that isn't the case and so all of this liquidity is fragmented everywhere right and so the hope is that kind of abacus acts as that equivalent of that central source of liquidity and that all of these people right now we take advantage of this competition or we don't take advantage of it but the consumer takes advantage of it because if one person yeah. is able to use that liquidity better than the next, then they'll probably get more volume. But then the next person is now incentivized to drop rates, give higher LTV, mm -hmm. come up with some new novel way to, to loan, come up with some new novel way to allow that loan to unlock something else. Right. And so um, mm -hmm. I 100% agree with that, which is that like, you know, this, this, this idea of, I guess, competition is bad is. Is wrong. It's not. Yeah, so we're here for a competition, not for the monopolies, right? So um, I was going to ask one last, well, one two-part question, one first part. How do we get Azuki's ahead of Board Ape Yacht Club so I can get in there first? <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I was actually going to ask, what do you think the um, outlook is for the markets for the next, like, you know, couple months or something like that? Are we going up, going down? Um, I'd love to hear yours and, and Zeus's take on it. Oh, boy. I mean, this is Zeus's. Wait about the crystal ball. I am a shit. <laughs> trader i will tell you that <laughs> I got he's a builder not a trader yeah yeah, yeah. Um, try it true i am so bad at trading um, <laughs> but in terms of the zuki by the way if you want to create a pool for that just you can send we have uh you could send over the the information for it and we'll add you to this list that we're going to create the pools from perfect yeah all right. Well, and Zeus, if you want to take a crack at the crystal ball, pull it out. Tell us if we're going up or down, so we can long it 100x on Binance or something. Yeah, like number that. go That'd up, good, Zeus, or number yeah. go down. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm also not a great trader, but <laughs> I'm of the expectation that we uh, we exit like pearl clutching mode by in the summer. Is, Sweet, you know, maybe right, it's opium, good. but I like it. That's well, what we're here for hear. as well. Well, thanks, guys. No, we uh, we appreciate both you guys hopping on. Geo, a man that is always on Do Not Disturb, but always replies to me is. Uh, <laughs> it was great having you, man, and thanks for bringing on Zeus. Zeus, thanks for thanks for joining us, and uh, appreciate both you guys. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, dude, I keep the Do Not Disturb because I think it looks cool, honestly. Yeah, and it goes it goes muted people. Yeah, it goes well with your pro, your PFP too. <laughs> it's a flex. Yeah. <laughs> It's all thematic. I love it. Yeah. yeah. All right, Perfect. guys. Well, thanks, guys. <laughs> Have a good one. Pleasure, guys. Yeah, thank you, guys. Have a great one.